Welcome back to another episode of The Conversational. Today I'm here with a friend of mine, Dave Morgan. Dave's got a really impressive, it actually, it's, it's an impressive one and it's one of those that you know we all sit in envy because he was at the early stages of sort of figuring out what the, the digital media world was going to look like and he was at the, the, the front part of it. It wasn't easy and you'll, as you'll hear from Dave. But today he's the CEO and founder of Simul Media, which is the leading TV ad platform that enables predictable, scalable performance. He previously founded and ran both Dakota Inc which was an online advertising company that pioneered behavioral online marketing and was acquired by AOL in 2007 for, wait for it, $275 million, and Real Media Inc., one of the world's first ad-serving and online ad network companies, and a predecessor to 24-7 Real Media, which was later sold to WPP, the big ad agency conglomerate, for those who don't know who WPP is, for $649 million. After the sale of Dakota, Dave served as Executive Vice President of Global Advertising Strategy at AOL, a Time Warner company. Fun fact, he is a lawyer by training. He served as the General Counsel and Director of New Media Ventures at the Pennsylvania Newspaper Association back in the early 90s. And he's a political science grad of Pennsylvania State University and holds a JD from Dickinson School of Law. He has a wife, two daughters. They all live in Manhattan. So um, it's a it's a fun it's a fun story. I think people are going to love to hear how a lawyer becomes a big old you know digital media mogul. So, <laughs> but, but before we get to that fun part, because I, I there's a great story there. But go back. Where tell me a little bit more about like your early early history. Like where were you born? Where are you from? What did your parents do? So I'm from um, <clears throat> a little cold town in western Pennsylvania, and by that I mean literally to the west of Pennsylvania. When I tell people that in New York, they're like, oh yeah, I know people in Lancaster or Allentown. I'm mm-hmm. like, no, no, no. Like, I mean, cross the George Washington Bridge, drive for five and a half hours, and then stop in the mountains. And so, tiny little town, um, a lot more deer than there were people. Um, uh, to get to a town of any kind of size, size bigger, we're about 6,000, and most things around were about two or 300. You drove for more than an hour to get to Altoona. Wow. So. When you're an hour from Altoona and when the weather's good, you're a long ways away. So, yeah. but my mother had was a nurse and then ran a nursing school, and my father was a lawyer, and so we were in the middle of a little coal town, but you know had professional parents that sort of, and a lot of people don't want to leave towns like that. So it was a bit of a different kind of um, youth. Youth, amazing. I mean, you know, it was unbelievable experience. It was like the little town with the picket fences, and you went to school with people who's, you know, I, I actually probably was some of the few parents that had graduate degrees, and most that, you know, even those that had college degrees were rarely other than probably school teachers. Where did your, where did your parents get their graduate degrees? Are they, were they born and raised in they that? Not. My part? father had been born nearby, but he had gone to, he had gone, he went to Penn State, then went to Penn and went to law school there. They met at Penn. My mother okay. grew up in eastern Pennsylvania, and she had gone to Penn for nursing, and so they met there, and okay. they eventually went, went back. back. And uh, it's funny, because I grew up like... I grew up drinking pop, like, you know, right. soda is something different. Soda is something you put ice cream in. <laughs> right. Um, and my mother, like, we'd always talk about this, and so it's funny now, living in, in Manhattan for almost 25 years, I drink soda. Yeah. My mother drinks pop now. Yeah. This is a funny, I'd like, so going back, I was born in, I've lived in 12 states, but I was born in Wisconsin, My both sides of my family, born and raised, five generations, same town in Wisconsin. 
and everything was pop, same thing. So I think this must be more of like a rural thing. And then the water, what did you call the thing that you push the button and reach over and drink water from? What do you call it? Faucet. Okay. Well, we called it the bubbler. Like oh, instead of okay. the water, fa- so like in Wisconsin, it was the bubbler. Interesting. I don't know. So these are this fun little like yeah, regional well, definitely things. For us, it's like the Allegheny Mountains, Northern yeah. Appalachians. Mm-hmm. Everything west is pop and Midwest. So when I tell people, like Pennsylvania is two states, it's very different east right. than west. And right. if you're on the other side of the mountains, we're much more like Kentucky mm-hmm. than we are like Scranton, Pennsylvania. Right, right, right. Or Philadelphia for yeah. Oh, that's a whole different. A different. That's another country. And I tell people like Pittsburgh, like. It's an affinity, but we only get to Pittsburgh every two years, maybe. Yeah. You get to go down to a baseball game or you go to the museum and you're going to stay overnight. Right. Something. That's amazing. So how did you... Okay, so you stayed there. Were you through high school? I stayed there through high school. I went to college at Penn State, which was a bit to the east. And, you know, as much as there's a draw, places like that, you don't leave. Most people sort of go back, but the economy was a wreck. I mean, I literally... And then I went to law school. I started as an engineer in college, but my father was a lawyer. I grew up around law, so I knew I had an affinity to it. And I liked it. Um, but only when I got to law school and I went to near Harrisburg, Carlisle, Pennsylvania, it was the very first time I saw a help wanted sign. Because mm. really? no one ever had a job that you didn't have a person that you had to advertise for. Right. I literally had never seen a help, help wanted, wanted sign. It yeah. was like startling. Like, huh. this is also, I mean, I went, I graduated and went to college in 81, and so I'm in law school in 85. So... You know, steel industry collapsed. Yeah. Just, there was no, yeah. Everybody was leaving. No one's parents had jobs when I was growing up. Yeah. So not, that's not that's way overstated. But it was unemployment was a huge issue. The mid seventies. Right. When whip inflation now devastated mm-hmm. Western Pennsylvania, the steel mills had collapsed. Yeah. Our area that was coal for coking coal for the steel mills, um, clay for the fire bricks. We refracted fire bricks for the steel mills. When they go, you know, sort of everything went. went. So, so yeah. it was different. That sort of those. <clears throat> yeah. They hear by the late '80s, mid '80s, late '80s. There's optimism and people are hiring and. Yeah. So. So you were. What did you? So you went. You switched from engineering to law, and then you finished your. I did that, and I worked for a Philadelphia law firm after law school. Um, I was going to go back home, but they were paying me more than my father was making after thirty some years. Here, my father had won a case in the U.S. Supreme Court. Really. Like, and he's an independent lawyer in a little town, a solo, and. A law firm's going to pay me more straight out of school, which is nuts. And yeah. so I took it. Yeah. So what was there? Was it a fun case that your dad won in the Supreme Court? That's kind um, of an interesting. It was. It was. I mean, it was unusual in that it was a case that um, actually very few cases ever get accepted to be considered. Right. Very few ever even or get an argument. And then of those that get argued, very few get decided. And those, I mean, they will get decided, but those that get decided rarely have opinions. Mm-hmm. We really write something out. Right. The court With makes opinion, law. Right, where they read the opinions, right? Well, where they write opinion and publish and say, they might, they'll just say this one won or this one lost right. most times. Because when the Supreme Court writes opinions, then it's making, mm-hmm. essentially making law and mm-hmm. common law. And rarely do you have dissents where you have multiple justices disagree. Mm-hmm. And he had one like that. It was actually, it was a murder case that had happened in the 60s where a school teacher um, apparently had raped and murdered a student. And it was at the same time when Miranda happened, which mm. was you have to tell mm-hmm. somebody that they have a right to a lawyer. Mm-hmm. And then a year or two later, it was a case, I think, called Gonzalez, which was you have to let people know that if they don't have money for a lawyer, that you'll provide one. Mm-hmm. And in small towns, police officers aren't is well-trained right. for this. I mean, they're watching, you know, Dragnet or something, and they, yeah. they've heard this, you know. Right. So they, there were real questions about whether this person had a fair 
was fairly given his notice, but he he admitted and confessed that he had raped and killed this student. He was yeah. a very smart man. Mm-hmm. He ended up, because it was so high profile, they couldn't seat a jury. And he was tried three different times because it kept, they, the law kept changing and, and they would have to do it again. And so eventually to get a jury, the judge sent sheriffs out into the street of the town and just said, go get people off the street and tell them I'm impaneling them in a jury because they needed jurors. And when they asked the juror, can you be impartial? Like, do you have an opinion? Are you aware? Because everyone was aware of this person Mm -hmm. in a small town, small county. And one of the people he impaneled and ultimately accepted as a juror said, yeah, I'm very aware of it. I've been reading about it. I believe he's guilty, but I can be convinced otherwise and I'll be impartial, Hmm. which is a bit against you are innocent until proven proven guilty. guilty. Right. my father ultimately is a district attorney in the town and argues that that is fair. Yeah. And ultimately, the Supreme Court held that up. Um, and so it was a bit of a controversial decision. It was written by um, Rehnquist, wrote the majority opinion in Brennan, minority, and so it was. Wow. Did, did that case, was that did that have an effect on you? I, yeah, that in lots of cases. I mean, I, I was lucky in that I was I felt like I was a mini lawyer when I was 10, 12. I was working in the office. I, really? Whenever I it was near the school, so when I'd walk through town to get to my parents' home after school, I could sort of go in the back way by the judges' chambers and sit in the courtroom. And so I listened to cases like all my life, like be like an hour before swim yeah. practice or something like that. So it always sounds so exciting. I mean, it's I you know I, I think my parents yeah. thought because I argued with them so much I would yeah. be a natural lawyer, but um, I you, you see this and you a lot of it's glamorized and I know so much law is just is the writing and the books and the the kind of the quote unquote glamour is the stuff in front of the the big yeah. stage like that. But well, it's interesting. What I found was one of the reasons why the big law firm didn't work out for me was it was an industrial version of what I grew up in. Where mm. I grew up, my father would do a criminal case and then maybe an adoption case, mm-hmm. maybe a real estate case, three people back to back. And he might have two or three trials in a week. And you work in a law firm, you might be on the same case for three years. Right. So I liked that part of it. It was sort of like the movies, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, I was at cross-examined at the dinner table every day of my life, which has affected me a lot as an yeah, you know, CEO now. Really, I, well, it's, I'm used to like not being intimidated that you don't know an ah, answer and you're not expert. We just okay. keep asking questions. Right. People that I ask them of don't always like that, and I always have to say, oh, "I'm sorry." Yeah. You know, I was cross-examined as a child all my life. So. Yeah. So you're very comfortable with that. That's yes. funny. So okay, all that makes sense, and I get the sort of the 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 uh, the skill set that applies as a CEO. But how did you get from what happened after law school? Well, what happened after law school was, I would say now, and this is a bit reflective, I might not have said this yeah, as, earlier. A, as a 24-year-old. Um, I had a lot of fun being a lawyer. I mean, I was being paid a lot of money, um, more than I was worth, working <laughs> on these fun cases and with a limited amount of oversight. And uh, I wasn't really into it. Uh. And so... But I was bright and, you know, I didn't like having to bill hours every six-minute increments and having to write that down on paper. Right. And I was lucky that the senior partner in the firm called me in about two years in. And he's like, look, Dave, you know, we like you. You're nice. You're smart. But this isn't for you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, we're not firing you, but you better move on. <laughs> How did that make you feel? Like what I was that devastated. Was, was like your fault. Like were you were you thinking like yourself? Oh my God, my dad's gonna think. I uh, could imagine. Yeah, it's like my whole being was right. wrapped up, and you don't know in this professional image that I'm a corporate lawyer and wearing my suit and my tie and everything. And um, and it was uh, it was 
yeah, it was devastating. devastating. It yeah. was like, and I've, all my classmates around, they all, everyone sort of knew I in the pecking order. I was in the big firm. Yeah. So like, felt pretty good High to be in the big most firm. Most likely to succeed kind of, right? Yeah. Mon- yeah. It was without question the best thing that ever happened. I mean, I never, right. he knew I wasn't really engaged and yeah. they could tell I wasn't going to be on a path to making them lots of money. Right. So, but it was hard for you to do. So, talk about holy shit moments. That was a big one, right? Being told yeah. that this thing that you've and then like knowing, okay, he's being nice to me. I probably got a couple months. I don't know how much time. I'm like thinking, yeah. like, who do I ask? Like, does this mean I got to run away in a month? Do right. I take two months? Do I figure something out? And and so I, I waited until the end of the year, and I didn't have know what I wanted to do. But they'd been overpaying me. I had a fair amount of student loans, so I'm trying to pay these things. Right. Oh gosh. Um. And um, and then I was just like heck with it. I'm just going to go travel. Um, and then my father was running in a political campaign, actually running statewide as a little town guy to run statewide. And I'm like, well, maybe if I don't have a job by halfway through the year, I'll go, go work on him. the campaign. Yeah. And, uh, for him, it was a passion he wanted to do. Mm-hmm. There's no money in the campaign. And so I just left and I said, I don't know where I'm going to go. And I, I used that time to um, read a bunch of books, travel, all my college buddies and others. I just go hang out with them, go skiing, mm-hmm. go LA go surfing. Um, I lifeguarded. I needed some money, so I lifeguarded at the beach in <laughs> South Jersey for the summer, which was funny because people would be like, "Well, you're not one of them. Like, what are you doing here?" Oh, you're here? on the beach, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And I worked on the campaign, which was just amazing and interesting. And uh, I used to run into James Carville most days because really, yeah. At that point, we'd lost our U.S. Senator John Hines in a plane accident, oh. and. Um, Dick Thornburg was going to run, and then Harris Wofford was running against him. And James Carville, who had lost all these races, came back to Pennsylvania because he'd won a gubernatorial yeah. race there once for Bob Casey. And so he was like a pariah in, in the party. He had not won Casey. This was a huge win. Yeah. And I got to watch him most days like yeah. I was traveling the States. So but, I had an unusual track. You where, did. Yeah. So when, So what... what um, what was the impetus that made you say, like, okay, I've seen enough, done enough. I'm going to go back and... I needed money. I had no money. <laughs> Starvation was your, still had, was your I, driver. Got I it. I still had student loans. I mean, yeah. if I do it again, I would have taken the too much money I was getting paid and paid off the student loans yeah. and things, but I didn't. Yeah, well, we're all young. Um, okay. So I needed money. Um, there was a job for a newspaper association, a trade association of mm. newspapers. It wasn't paying well, but it was really interesting to me. I thought I might want to be a writer. I figured if they publish newspapers, maybe they publish books. I could be a writer. Was um, this it, back in Philly or is this in New York? This now? was in Harrisburg, Oh, Harrisburg. Okay. Yeah. So okay. I'm bouncing between Philly and Harrisburg. Yeah. I've not been, I mean, my New York trips were when I played water polo in college and that okay. was sort of it. So yeah. I didn't. Okay. So I, um, I'm thinking this is interesting. They're not going to pay great, but I'll... And if I want to go into politics, which I've been running campaigns, then I'll know all these editors and I, you know, I can help in politics. Right. And the best part of it was I got to do something I understood well and I loved doing the law for newspapers and media law, advertising law. I learned that and focused on that. But this was the time at the beginning of the information superhighway. So we're at 1991. And the information superhighway is going to pipe into the back of the TV set, and we're going to order pizza from the couch. That was right. what was being talked about in 91, 92. Right. And they needed a lawyer to come in and help do deals between newspaper companies and TV companies and telephone companies and early online services. Mm. And that was me. I'd written a computer program in 79, 1980, so I sort of yeah. knew how tech worked. I started as an engineer, so I had a sense. Yeah. And so I started getting involved in those things. And then... I then started working in what we were calling new media. So I was helping these companies guide their way. 
and literally elevator pitched an idea in an elevator in late 94 in Dallas, Texas, 14th floor to the ground floor at the Hyatt to a guy named Brad Burnham who had a tag on that said he was from AT&T Ventures. And um, he didn't really like the idea, but he, he liked the idea enough that he let me follow him into the cocktail party and we kept talking about it at this um, yeah. conference where I was. Yeah. Now, Brad's sort of famously known. He and Fred Wilson founded Union Square Ventures, the yep. director of Twitter, Tumblr, mm -hmm. Zynga, yep. Coinbase. I've met Fred, yeah. yeah. Amazing. So, um, and it was funny. I was going out for a run, so I had to follow him into the party with my running clothes on. <laughs> okay. And they were all, this is the suit so, stage. Oh, I'm sure. Right, yeah. So, in Texas. And um, <laughs> basically, he was intrigued enough by the idea. He told me to come to New York and talk to him. I talked. I came to New York to talk to him. He shamed me in that you can't do a startup and also have a day job. So if you really believe in this, he's like, you're single, like quit and really jump in. He said, that's the way you get someone like me impressed. You're, you're, com you're convicted, right? You're so it. I did. What was your elevator pitch? Can I pitch? Can I do you know enough? Yeah. Assuming it was, it's like it a 30 was, second kind of. Yeah. It was that um, the web, the browser's out mm -hmm. now. The web is going to let us do direct marketing within media. You're going to have media content like a newspaper website that will have high degree of content that will appeal to a lot of people and you can change the ads to different people. Mm -hmm. And that you're going to need tech to do that, to manage mm -hmm. the individual one-to-one -one ads, and you're going to need a, a unique sales organization to do it. Mm -hmm. So you start a company to serve ads and to sell ads. Maybe only one of them works, that's fine. You kill the one that doesn't work. And mm -hmm. That was real media. That was a pitch, right. Yeah. Okay. And that he, was a pitch. He, he didn't yeah. back it. He didn't? No, no. So you, you quit your job. He's like, show me. Like, yeah. Quit your job and do this. And he's like, good job. I'm out. He was behind it. I had to go to the West Coast to Silicon Valley and pitch his partners. And they didn't like it. They backed City Search instead. Mm. Um, Charles Kahn, great business. I liked it. They had a $10 million idea. Mine was only a million dollar idea. To me, from a kid from a small oh school, a million dollar idea is more money than I can a imagine. Kid, right? So, um, But Brad became a good friend. I had breakfast with him this morning. I mean, he and I have... He's, you know, invested with me. Union Square Ventures was created out of my second company. Yeah. Um, so while he didn't back it, we he became an important mentor and friend. So who did back it? Um, I had to bootstrap it. So I was like giving legal counsel on the side. Literally, my tech office in outside of Philadelphia, in a place called Fort Washington, was only there because a newspaper publisher who had a libel suit gave me free office if I give him free legal advice. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> which I did. Um, and then I got a contract or two, and then eventually I met a guy at a dinner who was Swiss, mm -hmm. who was at a company called Publicitas Publi Group, the mm -hmm. largest, they invented the ad network in the 1860s in print. And he liked the idea, and he said, come to Switzerland, and maybe we'll do it. I, ne I didn't have a passport. I never... Yeah, a, right. Yeah. I'm, I'm 33 years old. I've not had a passport. You didn't need one to get from your town to Philly <laughs> in those no. days, right? and you could go in those days. Well, at least you go to Mexico and Canada on a driver's license. Right, that's license. true. That's right. Yep. So, and my father didn't get a passport until he came to my wedding, interestingly uh, enough, Oh, later in Mexico. So, but, um, yeah, so I actually went that morning down in Philadelphia and got a same-day passport and flew over to Switzerland and negotiated an investment deal, and they became an investor. And then soon after that, the Newhouse family invested, and they're just amazing people and investors. So I was very lucky to have some early investors that were strategic, not classic venture. But it was not easy sailing, as I recall. Oh, no, right? no, it was terrible. So, I mean, because I think you yeah. told me about one Christmas, right? Yeah, so things were up and down and up and down in those days. And um, 
we had at one point, you know, I thought it would be a business of six or eight people. And at one point, I have 600 people in um, 14 countries around the world. And then in late 2001, you know, dot-com bubble, everything was going down yeah. the wrong direction. And I was basically told that the only way that we could keep the door open was I had to give up basically control of the company and that they were going to we were going to lay off probably two-thirds of the people. And mm. I sort of had a choice. They're like, you leave. Right. And I'm like, I don't think I can leave because they're my people. They're yeah. like, well, there's nothing, like, we're not, we're taking you out of the control. And I said, look, let me do the laying off because you're going to have to yeah. pick at the right people and someone's going to have to be there and someone's going to have to do it and someone's going to have to manage this. And, um, which I did, which was like the hardest thing I've done. Ever, yeah. I mean, so, and, you know, I like to say like, but this was like 97? No, no, 90? well, no, there were ups and downs in 97 okay. different points, but this, oh, oh, that was, I, it's what we had talked a little yeah. bit about in another moment. Yeah. I've had several different, two different Christmas moments. <laughs> a lot of different Christmas, holy shit moments. <laughs> Christmas always, is a tough time. <laughs> it's late in the fourth quarter. Oh, yeah, no, I'm sorry. So, yeah. um, um, I was giving the dot com bubble blowing. No, in 97, we had a Christmas party. We only then were about 20 some people. We, did not have enough money to pay the bills. We had three of us had been funding and we hadn't taken any money. We've been personally funding payroll and no one else wanted to fund. We didn't have enough money. So we were having this holiday party where at the end of it, we were gonna tell people that the company was being shut down, but we had a deal. We were hoping to get closed with Netscape. Oh, and Netscape right. was going to license our software and use mm -hmm. it inside their publishing for their ad serving. And they had told us that they were going to sign the contract and wire the money. And we made it explicit that this $50,000 had to be wired this night. And so <clears throat> we had, Chase, which was our bank at the time, um, had already put the money in the employees for the payroll. It was a Friday in their, in their, in their bank accounts. But we knew that if the $50,000 did not show up by 5 o'clock. And this was your Christmas party, too, yeah, or something, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was a Christmas right, party. Yeah. They were going to, the money would come out of the employees and they would lose all it would be done it'd be over yeah and so we were going back and forth and one of my colleagues was on the phone with netscape like are you going to wire are you going to wire and they said well look we promised five o'clock but five o'clock pacific time not east coast time mm -hmm. so we actually got the manager of the local chase to um keep the door open just herself she stayed there for missing her like or probably her own family's christmas party yeah. and stayed open until eight o'clock she stayed in there without withdrawing the money. And sure enough, the money literally showed up a couple minutes before eight o'clock. And payroll got funded and no one ever knew, except me and the two others that right. were leading it. Who were aged significantly in those yes. three hours, <laughs> right? The difference. Okay, so that was like, that kept the doors open. And then yes. you fast forwarded, were you fast forwarding into this? Yeah, then I fast forward to, other Christmas. from 20 people three years later to, or four years later to 600 people. right, okay, right. And it's always at the end of the fourth quarter, yeah. into well, the holiday like the, yeah. season, and we had to lay off literally 275 or 300 people. It's almost half of your... Yeah. And um, and then we did another round in two months. And the New York Times, like, you typically want press. You, know? <laughs> <laughs> you want to get the front of the business section? Yeah. You don't want to get the front of the business section with a teaser on the front page of the paper on Christmas Eve day saying, you know, dot-com startup has a nasty Christmas gift for employees. Oh, God. But, uh. but the good part was... We did it early enough that the company survived. We were able to make it a profitable business. It was able to merge with 24-7. Yeah. Hundreds of people had jobs because of that. Yeah. Um, and we did it early enough in the cycle that a lot of them ended up working at places like Google. Mm -hmm. 
which <laughs> who was hiring into that cycle, and they did okay. Yeah, they did all right. Those people. Yeah. yeah. No. Okay. So somewhere along the way, you met your wife, yes. right? So I met her not long before having to do that. Um, the first Christmas or the second Christmas? It was. It was. Um, the second one. The second one. The second one. one. Okay. And we yeah. were growing our business a lot around the world. We needed help in Latin America. I was having to deal with the media companies myself because yeah. they're family owned. Right. It's very ego. So if you're going to meet with the head of the newspaper company of Brazil, the Mourinho family, Globo, right. O Globo, it needs to be me, the CEO. Yeah. So I needed a lawyer who also had a personality and could sort of work in that world. Right. And a friend of mine who did international trade law, who I went to law school with, said, hey, I'm working with somebody, and um, um, she's back in Mexico. She's now working for Televisa. I know she's a journalist and a lawyer. Televisa's the TV company yeah. in Mexico. And he said, hey, maybe you could talk to her. And you know, and once I had met her, and he said, well, yeah, like even if she doesn't want to work together, he said, not a, it's probably someone you should right. meet. Yeah. So he then knew. I, I found a lot of excuses to do a lot of business in Mexico for the next <laughs> six months, and then convinced her to move to New York. You did, yes. but but she convinced you to go to Mexico to get married. Well, you have to. I mean, yes. Yes. Like, I mean, yes. We had a small wedding. I mean, yeah. a small to medium size, which is about six hundred people in Monterrey in the north. So that's oh. by Mexican standards, that's not a big wedding. But right. Yeah. yeah right now, right. There's no. Yeah, you're going to get married where. Yeah, her family where, is. Her family is right. Her family yes. and the whole right. You have the yes. whole Hispanic culture yes. and big family, and yes. which is is surprising because usually a Hispanic family is means like generations and sixth and seventh cousins all the way around, right? It's a very tight-knit group. With oh, it lots, is. Yeah. Oh, it is. Right. Yeah, it's huge. I mean, and they're all there, and you have to try to see if you can remember them. And um, <laughs> I think her father was one of seven or eight. Her mother was actually one of um, uh, three. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's right. and it's great because for our daughters, we're in Mexico a lot. So I, you know, thought yeah. it was important no matter what that they right. be as much yeah, both American Mexican is Mexican American. Yeah, appreciate both cultures, right? Yeah. yeah, and and not have an accent that is a gringuita accent. Mm -hmm. And they speak. I mean, Spanish is the language of the apartment of the home. Really? Yeah, that's not, amazing. Not for me, but for them. <laughs> so this is when they want to talk about you. Yes. <laughs> okay, so so okay. Fast forward. When what year was it that you finally sold? You 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 sold that business ended up being sold in one. Okay, I was exiting because they're like look okay you manage the transition yeah smooth go good you yeah know. and they were going to buy a long-term non-compete from me and i said no because i don't know what i'm going to do next i'm going to get married i'm going to yeah need yeah. full flexibility yeah so brad burnham and i who i had met in the elevator the years before he and i started to code it together and our timing and fred wilson joined as an yeah. investor and and some others and that built that business had the right kind of timing and turned into a rocket ship and then yeah. sold that. What year was that? Oh, seven. Oh, seven. Okay, so we're six years into that. But that's yeah. a lot. I mean, you were still in startup. I mean, I know it was yeah. better established, but that's hours and hours yeah. of... And we were lucky there because we signed contracts on September 3rd and September 8th of uh, 2001. Oh, right before. Our only two contracts at that point. If we had not signed those contracts, that business would have never made it right. because... After 9 after, after September 11th, my birthday, by the way, oh. um, there's no, there was no business. I mean, there was no business, you know, yeah. was certainly no business in ad tech, yeah. digital for a year. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, it was, yeah, yeah. So it was good that you'd gotten it off the ground because you could keep yeah. it. Yeah. So I'm, I think if anything as an entrepreneur, I'm pretty aware of the fact that um, it, you know, 
things, lots of things happen that are out of your control and you don't either A, take credit for things that were out of your control that yeah. are nice to you when they yeah. happen or things that sometimes are bad and you just have to sort of con- control your own destiny as much as you can. To keep pushing. How do, so when you finally sold that in 07, I mean, look, you've you've done like this, you know, your career arc is so, you know, and you've got this wife and did you have children in, children, one, the, in with the we Dakota had children, years? Our, our children were born in 03 and 04. Okay. So in the t- middle of Dakota years. Yeah. Okay. So they were there. So then now you're, you've got sort of this juxtaposition. We bought of, an apartment in New York in 06. Oh, <laughs> oh congratulations. The, the peak. Yeah. So, yeah, it was one of those things I better find a way to get some money to <laughs> keep with it, this. <laughs> yeah, because you're not going to be selling it anytime soon. Economic right? structure, yeah. Well, at least for profit, right? right. So, yeah. So then, okay, so then you you sold and you're thinking... What? It was great, and I went into Time Warner AOL with the opportunity to stay or not. Mm-hmm. I chose to, to take a job with a big title. Um, it was a crazy time at AOL. I mean... How was that? That must have been very different, though. I mean, you were doing these startups, and now you're in this big behemoth. It was a couple things. Um, One, amazing people, super smart. Yeah. Like, to find a collection of so many people so accomplished. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So so credentialed accomplished, too. Like, tons of them. But it totally demystified the big company to me. Mm -hmm. I mean the kinds of things they needed to justify were as much what they needed to justify to each other. So there was a little, I would say, people saw startup people as a bit irrational and risk-taking, mm-hmm. and I saw them the same. I uh. saw them making decisions for what it looked like in a big conference room with a bunch of EVPs and presidents there, or yeah. a stock price, or what analysts think, rather than what was the smart thing. Right. Um, not for want of talent, but because you have to sort of, you start managing inside, not outside. In a startup, you're managing to the market. Mm-hmm. You're managing to your customers, you're managing to your suppliers, you're managing to your employees. Mm-hmm. In a big company, you're managing to peers, colleagues, bosses. You know, when I hire people that come out of big companies, we always have open space, um, plan, open plan spaces. Mm-hmm. And I put them in a middle space, always, because I need to see if they can take it. If they can, because if they can't watch people and not wonder, see who's watching them and people from big companies, all they do is watch other people. They try to see who are the alphas, who people move to, where decisions are made, because that's what you need to do to be successful in a big company and large institution. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in your perspective. You've been in. Well, <laughs> but, 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 but you know what I find and what you're saying, where I'm going, I think in my head, the things that are flowing through is in a startup or in that smaller situation, you know. Everything. I mean, you're so you, because you have to be. You have to know your customers. You have to. You to your point. You're following the market. What do they need? Who's coming in? You know your numbers. You know your profit. You know your sales. You know. You know everything. And when you get into the big companies, you only know some of that. I mean, we, and you find that as the higher up you go, sadly, <laughs> I don't want to say the less you know. I don't want to. But it's. But you. You only know pieces of oh, it, it really well, right? And and. It is. And it even got to the point, at one point, someone had said to me, he was very senior in the industry. Yeah. And they knew that I was in an unusual spot. And they said, well, I was getting to know people in the company and how it was. And yeah. they thought my star would be, you know, was, was in a good place in the Time Warner organization. Because um, it was a significant transaction yeah. that a lot of people had to make decisions on. And um, and they were talking about different people, whether I had met them. And then they said, well, and like, you know, the prince. And I was like... Who is that? Who's, who's who's got that nickname? I'm like, I'm like, I don't know who they call that. Like, who, who is that? 
And she's like, the book. And I'm like, Machiavelli. Right. This is, yeah. And I'm like, she's like, you have read it. And I'm like, well, in high school. Right. Yeah. Um, and she's like, read it. And she's like, what do you mean? She said, well, you, you are the hereditary prince of the captured principe. And you have to either, you can be moved into any level in the company as long as you're ascending and you're part of the, the new regime. And if you're not, then your head has to be taken off and dragged up and down the street to show what happens if you're not. So you actually have a lot of flexibility where everybody else that's come in the company has to take their time moving up. And literally, I was on an airplane the next morning. I stop in the airport. I pick, pick up, up the, the book. book. It's really a fast read for anyone yeah. who hasn't read it in a while. Yeah. And I was like, oh, my God, I, she's right. Like this That's what I'm in the middle of. And because I made some comment to her about, it was a cocktail party. It only could happen in New York. I said, yeah, well, I don't know if I'm going to stay or not. And she said, don't ever let anyone hear you say that because that means then you end up with your head on the thing because you're, yeah. you're disposable. Mm-hmm. And someone needs to use you to win. It's an example, right? Yeah. And I was totally right. And I totally then made some decisions that led to my leaving the company. Before they could drag your head up and down the aisles. Yes. yes. <laughs> my, my chopped off head up yes. and down. Yes, right. Your chopped off head up and down the aisles. Okay. So you made the decision to leave, right? Yeah. Which was probably, you know, another, actually, I always try to make these connections. It's not too dissimilar to your, I was a lawyer in a firm story and somebody's like, hey, kid you're a nice kid, but this ain't for you, right? Yeah. And you kind of already knew it instinctively, just like you knew it well, there, right? That, yeah, it was. I, I'd say probably this was a little bit different because, yeah, it is very much like that. I felt like I was a, a, a generation or so more mature that course, I could right. solve for this one. And then the question was, did I want to solve for it? Right. Now now that you've got the skills, does it make it any better? Just, right. You still, it doesn't change how you feel. You're just smart enough to know how right. to manage through it. Yeah. And then I think because a lot of my career has been working to enable big companies to navigate through the digital world, Mm -hmm. it really taught me a lot more about how decision-making happens in those companies. I also learned about the loneliness of the people at the tops of those organizations. And as you say, the amount of information they have is limited. I had the flexibility that I could get in and out to see them all of the time. Mm -hmm. So I could share a lot of information that I saw in the market. I found a lot of times some people might have seen them as detached. And I have to say, those senior leaders, some of them may not have fared as well in the in the way people think of them. Really strong, really smart. Like I then learned a lot that like, boy, what a lousy job this can be. Yeah, to, yeah. It's out of your control. Yeah, but it's a, but I but there is a super lesson in there because I I know I have been in those situations and and I, my head has been actually. Cut yes, off yes, and yes. Bloodied and drugged and splattered some more. But I mean. You, but instinctively, I knew I wasn't a good fit. It, I wasn't happy. Yeah. It wasn't, you know, but you're like, I'm Spartan to get through. And I think, you know, it can turn out a million different ways, but it's an important instinct. And I talk to people. Yeah. It's important instinct to, to, to listen get, to. And then you realize sometimes that this defining moment, which everyone uses as for why they want to drag your head, had nothing to do with why right. your head is being dragged. It has to do with what they want to accomplish. Absolutely. And you're not fitting in your... So and you're be, being used as an example. Yes. Exactly right. No, exactly right. That's yeah. and you know it, the yeah. smart thing is to get out before that happens, like you did. But it's an important lesson for people. I think listening is like you know, are you if you don't feel happy, if you're not motivated and excited, you know, it, that's just, you need to listen to that. Right. right. And then I think once you're back outside again, then you realize 
there isn't this we've we've created in many ways a business culture which um so glamorizes people depending on what level they ascend at what size of the organization mm -hmm. and then you start realizing there's a couple things going on one it isn't as glamorous it isn't that glamorous <laughs> in the higher up but number two there's no way I would say they're all more capable in a lot of things. They tend to be more capable for internal institutional mm -hmm. management many times. Or, you know, your job is to manage your board and your stock price, like right. not lead a company. And then I now understand that. And so when I said demystify, it's really changed how I think of things. Like the television industry is a very closed business yeah. in industry where I am now. And there's people I would have otherwise just been, like, intimidated by, like, you know, sitting down in a room and I'm like, no, like, I get it. Like, they got to worry about a board and a stock price and I'm doing this and actually Back many to the ways. stuff your dad taught you, yeah. right? Yeah. And I'm, and they're I'm more scared <laughs> of what I could do to them than mm -hmm. I am of the fact that, like, I took me three months to get this appointment where I've been given 18 minutes to, like, get in and get out and I had to fly someplace to go do it. Yeah. I had to meet one of the heads of the top movie studios literally in Tucson at 935 in a bar at a place like where I was going to be allotted like 20 minutes for a drink. Oh, my gosh. I showed up. Yeah. Was... It was great. Oh, yeah. We're I actually up. got an hour. Out oh. Of them. oh. And, um, and he, and it was like, it's like, it ended up not being, I was trying to do an ad deal. Yeah. He basically gave me two minutes to say that, basically said, yes, I'm going to put you in touch with this person. We can do it. And then he used it for half an hour to try to learn information from me, which was wonderful. And we were talking yeah. about structural issues. Um, That's fascinating. Yeah. And so then I realized, yeah, he needed the meeting as much as I needed the meeting or thought I needed the meeting. Probably more, right? I probably didn't have to fly all the way to Tucson for this. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it's what, but you're right. What's what yeah. you learn and what you know. Yeah. What, how has, so you've had all these learnings and now you're head of this, this big, Meet, you know, Simon Media, this big company. What, how does it feel different? I mean, you, you're, you're still, it's a big company, right? So you've still got that sort of that, that, that dichotomy, yeah. but you. Well, we're not big in a Time Warner big. Right, no, right, no. <laughs> um, but, and I try to actually, in some ways, be efficient and very software. But how many driven. employees? Well, only 100. So we're not. Oh, there's big. only 100. No, yeah, it seems we, bigger, to, we, I guess, when I think we, about it. We're, but we're probably five times bigger than we, well, we're more than five, we're 10 times bigger than we were at Real Media when we had. Yes. 600 people. Right. So we're functioning like thousands. But, um, you know, I, I'm i focusing more on impact, yeah. how I manage people. I'm probably a lot more focused, I realize. I think, you know, in some ways, both of the early businesses had smaller original expectations. They grew mm -hmm. into bigger things. This had bigger expectations. Um it's very hard to change a seventy-two billion dollar a year TV and TV ad industry. Yeah, that's run by fourteen people. Like yeah. I've tried. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I remember. Yeah. yeah. Yes. It's, so it's that's hard. Mm -hmm. And so, but now I know it's you. You hang. You know, you hang near the hoop. You keep doing the right things. You right. you figure out how you can work structure to your advantage. Yeah. I'm much more patient than I used to be when I need to be. I probably attack it more like a marathon runner than a sprinter, but I know when I need to sprint. Do you love it? Yeah. I mean, I mean what are you going to say? Like, oh, yeah. your CEO doesn't love his job. What am I? <laughs> yeah, no. no it's, do, yeah, I, I love what we can do. I love making a difference. I love doing it with the people. Do, is it, you know, I think this is the thing I feel like, I guess, at this stage. Like, if anyone had asked me when I started the first company, you know, are you going to be like a 25-year, almost 30-year yeah. ad tech exec out of like... I'd have cried if someone had said that about <laughs> right. me. Yeah. I thought I was going to make a real difference in the world. Yeah. Um, uh, 
you know, probably you know, are more than you know, well, right? No, it's it's funny. A, yeah. You know who you know who had a little classified ad, classified ad server selling in the newspaper companies at the same time that we had our display ad server. Who? Elon and Kimball Musk. Oh my gosh! Really? <laughs> it was called Zip Two. Uh, He's running them at conferences all the time. So, yeah, my daughters think that's sort of funny and yeah. cool to say that. I but, mean, I so. Um, you know, he took his money and took these really crazy, risks. smart mm-hmm. risks, and mm-hmm. I'm really happy for what both of them and Gimbal has built. Really interesting business. Well, you did your risks too. before you'd be 20. You, you're, you're, those were big risks. Yeah, I mean, I, you. Were... I feel I don't. I'm not. You know, yeah. I I feel very comfortable with the risks I've taken. Yeah. And so, you know, I part of me now is more like there's very mission driven because mm-hmm. fortunately the economics have worked out really well for me in the past. Yeah. I'm very focused on. You know, the hundred people and those hundred families and yeah. what happens to them if we, you know, when we do well. Yeah. It's a, it's a sort of nice theme of yours because you've always been very focused and you're, when you tell the story of like the bootstrapping and these people, yeah. you're, it's not just that your company is going to go down. You're worried about these people on Christmas Eve about to have their, their Christmas ripped from them and their jobs. And you, you've always had a great and, sentimentality for your yeah, employees, which I is wonderful. Understanding it matters and then designing for it matters. Like, We've always gone for really strong health benefits. Mm-hmm. Why? Well, quite frankly, the most important person when you're hiring someone is the significant other who's not in the interview. Yeah. Well, what do they want to know? I know what the questions are because they always call in the next day after the offer to the head of HR to understand the health plan. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you win them, you don't have to win the other one. And if they ever have a problem and they're like getting calls from other companies... The Time Warner health plan was not as good as the Dakota health plan. That's my job is to make sure a big company doesn't have a better health plan. It's harder to take my people away. Well, you're going to get paid more money, but the health plan's not as good. We have to change doctors. Yeah. Like, sell that one at home. Right. That's a great... Oh, see, that's a great... Yeah, you put the people first and you can beat and the big guys. Yeah, and it's cost effective. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not saying it's, it's, an, it's an accounting issue. It, right. it, like, to take away co-pays, to add, you know... Um, optical insurance and your extra dental insurance and some other kinds of insurance, you're going to make it so they don't have to worry as much at home. So there's less pressure if they're a little bit late getting home, right. if you have to send them to do something, if they get another offer. Um, that's worth many thousands of dollars in salary. And training and turnover. Right. And hiring. It's yeah. good. Dave, this has been wonderful. Thank you oh, for coming awesome. to spend yeah. time. <laughs> I, it's been, it's, I, I love doing these. I learned so much from people that I've known forever. So Thank you for coming. You're welcome. Thank you. Appreciate it. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.